Welcome in to the Free Retiree Show, where we help you transform your life so you can become financially free. In this show, we'll give you the inside track on how to excel in your career, filter out the noise surrounding your finances to help you make smart financial decisions, and we'll learn from thought and business leaders who can help you live your best life. Welcome into the show. I'm Lee Murphy. I'm with my co-host, career advisor, Sergio Patterson. What is up? And we have Silicon Valley's favorite attorney, Matt McElroy. What's going on? So today we have a really special interview, Carl Reinhardt. Mr. Reinhardt, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit of background on Carl. He is a CEO, a chief investment officer of a financial firm. He has helped build up a firm to $2.5 billion in assets. He's written three books, and he's literally one of the most successful business owners I've ever met. And today what we're going to be talking about, we're talking about how he rose to success. He's going to give you tips that apply to all business owners. He's going to give you what his path was, what he see, the common mistakes that he sees business owners make. Also in his experience, he has acquired multiple companies. So... We're going to ask him, you know, what do you need to look for when you're looking to buy a company? Before we get into our interview with Carl, if you like the show, make sure you subscribe, share us on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you want to listen to other episodes, you can get us at thefreeretiree.com forward slash show. And if you have any questions, make sure you send them to ask at thefreeretiree.com. Mr. Reinhardt. Yawol. We are so happy to have you. <laughs> We uh, before we get into the interview, we hear that you are a a whiskey man. That you are actually a connoisseur of whiskey. Tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, I've drank from New York, Hudson River Valley, to tonic, damn good bourbon, to Tennessee, to uh, more like sour mash whiskey, all the way to Scotland, to single malt, and even on the west side. To some brandy. Well, wow, all so over the I, world, Carl. I, I've had it all. <laughs> well, this is this is what I thought would be great. I've heard that you have a palate, that you are a gentleman when it comes to your whiskey prowess. Sergio, Matt, and I, we're more like alcoholic degenerates. So when we drink whiskey, we slam it back like frat boys. But since you are more cultured than us, I figured we'd start this show, fill up a little bit of whiskey in our glass, and you can give us... A critique on how you taste whiskey. How does that sound? Sounds good. All right. So right now I have Hibiki, which is my favorite whiskey. Oh, good choice. Oh, that's the Japanese one, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, that is a good one. All right, Carl. So we're going to taste this whiskey. Tell us, degenerate alcoholics, what we look for. Hey, speak for yourself. I- <laughs> <laughs> well, what we look for when we're tasting the whiskey. Um. First of all, I think if you want to avoid the AAA meetings, um, you know, you should go for taste instead of quantity. Mm-hmm. And if before you taste, I always read the labels. And uh, in this particular scotch, I, if I remember right, aren't there 18 facets in the bottle that mean something special in Japan? You, you're talking to the wrong folks here. Oh, right? you're- okay. Too classy for us. Well, the, what do we do? Like, what, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed okay. to smell it, swig no, it around? No, yeah. First of all, what you do is you kind of, you know, like a wine, you kind of swish it around your glass. Then you taste it because smelling and taste is probably the most, uh, I would say, prolific way mm-hmm. of tasting any scotch or whiskey. 
And then to me, my very first taste is you actually put it up into your lips and you suck air in with it. So you go. <clears throat> taste it. Then you swish it around. Mm -hmm. And I think in this particular one, I think you can taste a little like a malt kind of a flavor. You get a little sweetness up front. And I think you get a flowery finish Got at it. the tail yeah. end when you swallow it. Thank you. So, hey, folks, for you listeners, wow. you just learned how to actually drink whiskey. You inhale it through your mouth. You swish it around. And then you swallow it. Correct? Exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Carl. And then your second. See, and then you then you go back for your second taste. Oh, and then you do and because now time. you've now you've you've introduced it to your palate, okay, and so you're always looking for what's up front and what's in the finish. Excellent, got it. All right, well now you guys all know how to taste whiskey like a classy gentleman like Carl Reinhardt. So we're going to go into our interview, Carl. Why don't you give the listeners a rundown of where you've been at in your career in terms of where you started off when you became a business owner and the different business you acquired. Just give us a quick rundown of your okay. experience. Uh, I actually, I started interning in uh, Fresno and uh, I had a uh, law professor named Ray Benson who introduced me into the business and he suggested I meet a particular gentleman that was uh, building a business. And Ray Benson at that time was actually, he had a PhD in, uh, he was teaching law, but he also had a PhD in theater. And he was our fraternity uh, counselor that we worked with to help the little theater in Fresno in, in, on a marketing project. And I was president of a marketing fraternity. And in that particular case, he had said that he's, he saw some study from Stanford, I believe, that said that there was a whole new industry and in that industry that you had to kind of know something about law, something about insurance, something about investments, and some math background. And that would help you help clients actually achieve financial freedom. And I thought that was kind of interesting. So I looked around and there was a big separation, though, between the insurance industry and the um, finance industry. And so I actually started off in the insurance industry, but when I sat for my finals, I got my securities license. This was back in 69. And I started off uh, doing more securities than insurance, but the insurance companies were the best trainers at the time, mm -hmm. other than like maybe a Merrill Lynch or someone like that. And so I stayed there for about three, five years, learned that particular business and how to really do financial plans, help people with their estates, help business people, actually. And then um, I gravitated much more into the securities business, and I've been in that ever since then. So you found out something that you loved right out of the gate. Yeah, I've never done anything else, no, never learned anything else. Now, since that's all you've done, do you believe that that was your passion or did you make it your passion? I, I think, you know, at that time, I really, you know, everybody has kind of a mentor. And I think my first mentor was probably Ray Benson, the uh, law professor. And then I worked for a person named Tom McLaughlin, and he actually became my business mentor. And um, I, I worked with him, you know, learning the business. And then he actually sat down with me uh, even though he was uh, very well known in the insurance business to get a security license and uh, start doing securities with me. All right. 
And how many companies have you been at the helm? At the helm? Mm-hmm. Probably about four or five. Four or five. Wow. So you got a ton of experience. This should be a great interview. Uh, one major reason why I want to bring Carl on, obviously he is a very savvy business owner, extremely knowledgeable, uh, but he is going to be retiring in March. So I figured this is a great time to tap into some wisdom of how many years? 50, 100? How many oh, years? Oh, God, 69, 50? <laughs> that was a little off. 50 years? <laughs> Holy 50 shit. years. Holy cow. <laughs> So basically, Carl yeah, wow. and Jesus were in business together. <laughs> Carl, congrats, man. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, so I'm awesome. retiring. It's amazing. So, being in your profession, you help people retire, right. Right? right? And I'm in the same sort of line of work. And one thing that I've noticed is when people are in a retirement, you can have two things. You can either be the happiest point in someone's life because they get to do everything they wanted to do, or I've also seen the other side of it where people get depressed. For you entering retirement, are you worried about it? Do you have plans in your retirement, things you want to do? Well, I think, first of all, you got to be happy with what you're leaving. You know, can it continue? Is it a good service? And so I think we've built a good firm. There's about 12 people. Uh, we've got an office in Los Gatos. We've got an office here. And so I feel good about leaving at this particular point. Why do you think people get depressed when they enter retirement? Uh, probably because... There's not enough knowledge, and there's no happiness in what they've done. I've always felt mm. that you got to have gratitude first to go to the next level. If you don't have gratitude for where you are, I don't think you can go further. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just sound life advice, right? Just being happy with what you yeah. have. And, and, and yeah. you know, now, I mean, when I started, they didn't have 401ks. You know, now 401ks, I think, are absolutely wonderful. I think it's a great way of accumulating not only your own money, but your employer's money, because usually there's a match that's involved. And so if you're not putting the maximum into a, a 401k, shame on you. Carl, you sound like Lee right now. <laughs> <laughs> they give me a hard time because I learned from the master. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, in, your, in your profession, you've had... From what I've heard and what I know, it's been a big story of success. But I'm sure in business you had points that were difficult. What was the most difficult point in your 50 years of being in business? I think the most difficult point, and it's, it goes back to, uh, I remember my son Eric was at Santa Clara University, and that's when the tuition, I think, was like 14000 instead of, what, 45000 I think, <laughs> yeah, now. And... We were top producers in a uh, securities firm. This is Alan Werba, one of my partners, John Bowen, and I. And we decided that what we really wanted to do is form more of a pension style of investments and really do it on a fee basis instead of a commission basis. So in order to do that, the three of us went for two years without any income. You know, when you're a top producer and you're making a shitload of money and you're buying Porsches and houses and stuff, and all of a sudden it goes away and you're building up a fee business, that that was very tough. And that was in 19, I think about 96, 95, somewhere in there. So I, I think that was the toughest time in my business. What made you want to make that change and switch to the fee-based? Um, you know kind of um there were two things one we were forced into it 
and I, the reason I say forced into it, if you th- if you go back into the 1980s, you know, at the early 80s, banks, I mean, you can have a bank account and money market fund and get 10%. That was a tough time in the business. I mean, in the securities business, how do you beat that 10% when you're getting it through the bank? The other thing is in 86, 87, the real estate laws really changed. And so what happened was almost every real estate program that we had any connection with went under. I mean, every major company went under. So what we did is we brought the people in in reverse and we started lawsuits against those companies, but it didn't help much because, hell, they were all going under yeah, no at money. that time. <laughs> they had no money, okay? Yeah. Even though we started class action lawsuits and we funded those things and so on. So, but we learned that you're better off to have investments that are liquid. And if you go back in history, the liquid investments like the stock market, even though you've had 40% drops, have actually beaten real estate. You know, most people are comfortable in real estate because you can see it, you can feel it, you can touch it. There's rental income, okay? And everybody says, how, do you, how, how, how could you ever lose money in real estate, okay? But I tell you, you know, in my experience in the year, what, 2008, it didn't matter if you were in real estate or if you were in the stock market. It dropped 40%, okay? But interestingly enough, the stock market recovered much faster than the real estate market did. I had a place in Carmel. It took me 11 years just to break even. In your journey, you started off, you said there was some, there was a beginning point, right? I imagine you weren't making that much money and you're probably still trying to figure it out. What was the turning point? Is there a point when you were in business that you said the light just came on and you figured it out? Yeah. I think, you know, we made connections. Uh, this was, I'm trying to remember, I think maybe not about 1988, somewhere in that range. And we ran across a company called Dimensional Fund Advisors, DFA. And we looked at that company, and it was an institutional company with low charges. And this was before the Vanguards got big and the, and the, um, uh, the, the ETFs came out. And they had an average cost basis of like maybe about 38 basis points. Okay, which is very low because the average in, in those days was like 1.8, 1.6. Okay? And so we said, well, you know, if we could figure out a low-cost basis, do a pension style of investments, stay liquid, okay, then that's, that's the answer. And instead of chasing managers, because if you look at managers, okay, let's just say that if the market's bad, what's up? Gold, right? So it's all the gold managers that are up there. If the market is in a growth area, what's up there? It's all the technology companies and the small companies. It's not the manager that moves up to performance. It's the the sector that moves the manager up. So once we learned that and we learned what the academic studies have said, okay, which is basically more value than growth, more dividend-paying companies than non-dividends, shorter term in bonds than longer term, then we decided, let's stay in that pension style of investments, and let's do that for the people because that's the right thing to do. So you found something that separate you from the competition, that sets you apart. Exactly. Yeah. So as you know, a financial consultant, you have hundreds of clients that are business owners. Do you think that 
narrative still applies in their situation. Finding something that separates you from everyone else. And would that be one of the keys to developing a successful business? I think, you know, first of all, after you've gone through and you've had some defeats, you have to learn off of that experience. And you can't just, you know, say, well, now I'm going to go into a panic attack. You know, now I've learned off of that particular experience and I'm going to do better. It's not going to happen again. So I think I've, I've had enough experiences that I can share with a business person and sit down. And the three things that I preach to every business person is, first of all, if you have a business, know what the value is. Periodically, calculate what the value is. Because there is no value unless somebody buys it from you. Okay, So you always want to know what's the value of that business, number one. Number two, instead of paying rent to someone else, get your own building. And if you can't qualify, get an SBA loan. SBA is very willing to finance your buildings if you're in a business. And the third thing is the only deductible investment is a pension plan. And yes, you have to put some money in for your employees, but usually you get the the bigger percentage of it since you're the owner and you have more income than everybody else does. And so I say, you know, between the business, which always you want to keep outside, I mean the building, you want to keep that outside of your business. It's bad to have a business building inside your practice. You want to keep that separate, okay? And then your pension plan, That'll take care of your retirement. And the other thing is, at the tail end, you don't know what actually accumulated more. Was it the pension plan? Was it the building? Or was it your business? But if you can afford to lose one of those and stick to the other two, you've got a comfortable retirement. And I'm there, all three. So you're saying if you got two two out of three, you're good, though. Uh, And I got all three. (laughs) He would. Well done. That's really great advice. That is excellent advice. I've never, I mean, I haven't heard of anyone that's ever given that advice. And it was very simplified, too. Yeah, I like that. Easy to understand. Three part process. And I've never thought about it like that. That's that's really great. Yeah. Yeah. So you got the three steps to that have helped you in your success, the things that you've also seen that work for the people that are your clients. Exactly. And I, I do the same thing for my clients because, you know, I, I'm a believer. And so I express that believability to other people. So on the other side of it, you've seen probably a lot of train wrecks with business owners and how, what they did. What are the common mistakes you see that keep the business owners from succeeding? Um, you know, at the very beginning, when I started doing pension plans, I actually had two businesses where employees actually absconded with some of the funds. And and one of them was even a law firm. And wow. they, they didn't find out until later, okay, that a person absconded. We're all looking at Matt McElroy right now. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> wow, yeah. All eyes went to Matt McElroy yeah. in the studio. I'm sure that lawyer got his uh, yeah. license taken away by the bar. <laughs> no, that wasn't the lawyer. That was the accountant. Oh. <laughs> but, but, you know, the, the thing is, Stuff happens, and you, you can never, nothing is 100% right. Yep. You know, no matter, no matter what you do in life, it's never 100% right. So you got to be able to roll with the punches. You just keep taking the punches? or <laughs> No, you keep avoiding the punches. Uh, <laughs> you you got to be the jabber instead of the receiver. <laughs> yes. Okay, I like that. So, Carl, you've been, you've, you've run businesses across multiple decades, so I yeah. think... The other thing I'm hearing is adaptability. 
Yeah. It seems like you adapted to your environment. You adapted to the times. I, I think, you know, when you, when you start off, um, there's a certain familiarity. And the familiarity is what you really believe. And all of a sudden, your belief gets challenged. And so you learn what's really the right thing. So, Carl, through your career, how many companies have you acquired? I uh, About, let's see, sold two, bought four. Okay. So, for the business owners out there in the different professions, not just your profession, what advice can you give to them if they are looking to buy a business? And this is actually a great topic because Mr. McElroy is looking at going down that same route. He's actually analyzing a potential uh, business acquisition. Carl, what advice can you give us, okay. all the business owners, if you're looking to acquire right. a business? Now, remember, there's a big difference between purchasing, let's say, a, a manufacturing or a service or actually uh, being a broker. In other words, like, uh, you know, where you broker vegetables to companies and things like that. Uh, there's different things and steps. In my particular case, it's always been more in the service arena uh, or investment arena. And so I've always thought of uh, what I call the, the five P's. Okay, First of all, what's the philosophy of the person that I'm going to buy their business? Who are the people that's involved? Um, besides that, uh, what kind of programs do they have what's the product that they're handling and most important where's the profit and so say what can i maintain can i maintain the philosophy can i maintain the product can i maintain the people can i maintain the program that's made them successful and can i maintain a profit if they are not making a profit is that okay do you still jump into that uh I've never touched somebody that doesn't make a profit. <laughs> okay. So you're saying, because there's a lot of people, you know, business owners in general are really optimistic yeah. people, right? Yeah. And they jump into a lot of opportunities because they say, well, I can do better. I can turn it around. I can buy that person's yeah. company and I can turn a profit. Do you think that's a good mentality to go in when you're acquiring a business? I think that's more of an egotistical thing. If somebody's been working, okay, and... They've tried different methods to make a profit, and they haven't been able to make a profit. Okay, then you've got to say, is there something so unique that I can bring in to turn this company around? See, now all of a sudden, it's not maintaining; it's me changing. Hmm. And with me changing, you're bringing in a change, and that change is not guaranteed. See, whereas where, that flow that's been going on with that business, that's that's almost a guarantee. And that's why you do goodwill, right, Matt? And that's why you do all these other things, okay? Because there's something that's there. If there's a loss, that means I've got to throw money into it. I'd rather throw money into the payment of a profit in the long run than something going down the tank. So something's already in the tank. You can get a good deal on it. It hasn't been a proven uh, method to make money. What's that unique thing that you're looking for where you can say, yeah, I'll buy it because I have this unique factor? What is the unique factor? You said it's not the person, so what is yeah. it? Well, 
let me give an example, okay? To me, the only unique factor that I think might work or has worked is if you look at a particular community and you're going to buy a place and there's really high expensive houses and there's one house in that area that you got to put some renovations in to get it up to the level, that might be the situation. I haven't done I haven't thought of any others. It's it's very hard to totally change a company around to thinking that you're going to make a profit. What's your view on this? like the company that you know that I'm looking at right now has a they have a you know long history. They've been around since 1983. Supposedly been pretty successful. I haven't actually seen any numbers yet or anything. But, you know, a big part of them is the goodwill of the business. They have a big customer list. Yeah. They, they have a lot of corporate customers and things like that. And, you know, one thing that kind of worries me is attrition. You know, like, you know, th these people have been solely running it. There's only it's only a two person yeah. thing. You know, they're gone. Is that going to are we going to lose customers because yeah. of that? That's, you know, that, that's that's probably yeah. right at this point before yeah. seeing any numbers or anything. That's my biggest fear. See, one, one of the things that always have to remember is this. And this happens, I think, all the time. If you're a one-man attorney and you die, where are the people going to go? State bar takes over. <laughs> you know, if you're in a firm and periodically you bring in another attorney to your cases, okay, there's a comfort zone, right, mm -hmm. with that firm. And so you got to look at the same way in that particular business. Now, are both going to be gone or are they going to help you transition? If they help you transition, then you work out a transition plan. That, that's what we talked about already a little it's, bit. And that, that that's really necessary that. because they have the goodwill. See, they've got the contacts, they've got the list, and they have the knowledge on how to do this particular business, right? And, yeah, and from what it sounds like is it sounds like they have you know amazing relationships with, with these clients and right. suppliers and whatnot. So. But do they have to stay around? Pardon? I mean, once you well, do this transition? No, I'm saying you got you to look at what the transition is. Okay, if a person is cold turkey out, that's tough. That is really tough. That's like the death of an owner. Ah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. And you got to think of that. So what? What? How do I continue that goodwill that you're going to pay for in the business agreement that you're buying? Right. There's a portion for goodwill. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's one in in the case of this business. I think it's probably going to be a big part of it. Yeah. Because so, it's, it's not the building it's or anything like that. Although I would love to, you know, op, op, you know, have some kind of lease option to yeah. buy kind of situation in, in the negotiations. One, but I don't one, think of, that's one of the happen. examples of a business that I bought, there was a building and there was a business. Okay. And the business was primarily not a fee business. It was a commission business. In our particular industry, we substantially discount commission business. Whereas we multiply a fee business. Um, a commission business is worth 0.85 of what the person makes a year. A fee business is worth two and a half times what's coming in. Wow. Okay. So, so there's a big difference. In this particular business that I bought, uh, I had, it was an ownership of the building, ownership of the business, but I had to convert so I had to do special contracts to make certain that that conversion happened, and I pulled the, the building out of the business. So to me, the building in that particular situation was a safety valve. 
So you kind of, you, as far as pulling out, you mean you, as far as ownership, right? You right. separated it from I, the business. I separated at the time of sale. Oh. Instead of one, I, you know, I, I did a sales for, here's what I'm going to pay you for the building. Here's what I'm going to pay you for the business. Two separate. Two separate. Contracts. Contracts, yeah. Wow. And that's, that, that's really smart. I think that's a genius idea because then you you know you protect yourself liability right. wise too. And, like, and then the other the other thing too, since you're an attorney sitting here, I tell you, I have never bought or looked at any business without having an accountant with me and an attorney. Oh yeah. You know, you, you always to, you right? always want to have the professionals because one will protect your butt and the other one will do the right calculations. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in, in, in a lot of my cases, I, I, I work with forensic accountants. And yeah. they, you know, they just tear people's, you know, work up, you know, QuickBooks, whatever. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, they, you know, they'll, they'll find fraud or whatever. Oh, yeah. Quick. You know, re- restaurants are the, they're the absolute hardest thing to ever purchase. Oh, yeah. Why? The guy skims the money out, you know, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because, you know, in law school, I was bartending and, the, you know, the bars I'd work at. The owners would just walk around and just take it right out the exactly. They they just walk and away. and they you know <laughs> that's the reason number one that that is the hardest industry with the biggest bankruptcy, because they forget they have to rebuy supplies and food. Right? They take the cash out. <laughs> but I think you know, putting your ego aside and hiring people that are better than you are, I think is is probably the best way of getting ahead. You know. Um, how, how would I say this? Um, you know, like you, you can be a CEO, you can be a CFO, you can be a COO, you can have all these various titles. But the most important thing is you got to learn how to set objectives and you got to learn how to work with committees so that those objectives actually get accomplished. It's know? about the team, right? Yeah. Teamwork. Yeah. You got to put together an awesome team. When you say committees, are you talking about like, I'm trying to translate it to like, Let's just say corporate America. You like stakeholders, right? It's like I'm a project manager. Nothing gets done. I can't work in a silo. It's about like building relationships and partnering and working with other people to get like objectives done, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like um, I work with, speaking about people better than you are, okay? I work with uh, two people um, that kind of like my next business venture, and they're both PhDs. And um, they're PhDs in psychology. And one of them has really tremendous experience in working in the high-tech community, in working with CEOs, but also working for creating productivity in teams. And we just wrote a book, the three of us, called Teamicity. And you can get it on Facebook. It's, it's, it, but it, it helps you work with teams because you got to be compatible with those teams and remember you can't perform everything you've got to have other people do the performance for you okay and so you got to build that trust relationship and when you look at a team there's three main things you got to have some alignment right you got to have a common purpose you got to have common objectives you got to have accountability periodically you said where are we now to this particular project and the other and and the other thing is you got to have some type of integration people have to learn how to work together no nobody's out there as a lone wolf lone wolves isn't the business anymore unless you're a consultant only working by yourself you know right now the big change you know like sergio you asked you know what's the big change 
The big change used to be, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. I can do this by myself. And then people took that attitude to work. I can do this by myself. And all of a sudden now, you realize that it's not me. It's a team. And it, if the team does good, I do good, okay? Because I either lead that team or I'm part of that team. And so the third book that uh, Bob Lauritsen and Fran and I wrote was, and we branded it called Timicity because it takes a village to raise a family. And so we used, instead of the word village, we used the word team and we used the word Timicity. And so it goes back, you know, to the original circle, which is like alignment, accountability, and integration. But how do you apply that? to the team that you're working with. And I tell you, to me, that's the best $10 you'll ever spend. You can go on Facebook, do Timicity, and uh, pay your $10 and get a nice Kindle book on it. I think it's for a young person, for a person that's moving up in leadership, I think it's an absolute must. You've developed all these successful companies. I mean, what defines your success? As you look back, over your 50-year career, you're looking at the rearview mirror, what do you think defines your success? Is it all those things? Is it one thing that stands out? I, I think in the long run, I think I've always been more of a giver than a taker. I think I've been able to establish trust with people because I never, I don't think I ever hurt anybody, okay? Even when I fired people, there's still trust, you know, and, and the person realized what happened. It, it's not me being an obnoxious ass doing something. And I think, I think the most important thing is be a giver, be a participator, love what you do, and have goals. Well, let's wrap this episode up. Carl, thank you for coming on. We learned a ton from you. Uh, and I just want to say thank you for being an integral part of my career. You've been... Uh, instrumental in my success and I couldn't have a better uh, person to learn from. And see the perfect example is you're doing something I would be scared of doing. Yeah. <laughs> see? Yeah. You have a talent one way, I have a talent another way. We work well together. And I've, I've learned yeah. that. Uh, ladies and I've learned so much from this man. So, yeah, maybe your your strength isn't in podcasting and creating things over the internet but uh, you have so many more and I've just taking what I've seen from you and I've put yeah. it in. Well, thank you. Thank and you. you have a nice family. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, we should tell the, our listeners that uh, Carl actually married Lee and Victoria. So. Yeah. And that, that was my first marriage ever. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> the, re- the Reverend Reinhardt. <laughs> He's going to ride around his RV. He's going to do weddings on the show. That's the real retirement plan, yeah. All right, thank folks, you, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Free Retiree Show. So long for now. Advisory services offered through RP Advisory Services Incorporated, a registered investment advisor with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Securities offered through Securities America Incorporated, member FINRA, www.finra.org, SIPC, www.sipc.org, a separate entity. Lee Michael Murphy is licensed with the California Department of Insurance, license 0H18660. 
The free retiree, RMP Advisory Services, and Securities America are separate entities. Career advisors Sergio Patterson and attorney Matt McGillary are not affiliated with RMP Advisory Services or the Securities America company. Securities America, RMP Advisory Services Incorporated, and its representatives do not provide tax or legal advice. Therefore, it is important to coordinate with your tax or legal advisor regarding your specific situation. Third-party sourced information or comments are not verified, may not be accurate, and are not necessarily representative of all client or audience experience. All or a portion of this event was paid by a third party. The opinions of a career advisor, Sergio Patterson, do not reflect the opinions of Facebook Incorporated. The opinions of attorney Matt McElroy do not reflect the opinions of Castaneda and company.